Good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. I'm going to set my timer, otherwise I'll probably talk over. So, um, This morning I wanted to speak on the topic of otherizing and what does it mean when we make somebody the other in our lives. And I wanted us to journey through a story that we find in the Old Testament in Numbers. Um, but I want to start with sharing a little bit about my story um, and how I experienced being the other. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I loved where I grew up. Um, it was an incredibly diverse community on some levels, and then on some levels it wasn't. But early on, I always felt like I was a bit of the other. Uh, my mom divorced when I was about one and a half, um, and this was in the 70s when that was very unusual at the time in my particular community. And as we were part of a very conservative Catholic church, um, my mom was made the other, and I was made the other because we didn't fit into what the norm was. And when I went to school, I went to a very prestigious public high school that was probably, probably still is one of the wealthiest in the nation. And we were by far the poorest family in the high school. My friends on their birthdays, when they turned 16, would get brand new cars, and I got a job. So. I felt a little bit like the other. Um, that was something I was very, very familiar with. Um, it wasn't necessarily people were being mean to me, it's just I didn't fit into the norm. It was hard to really connect with people because I wasn't like them. And sometimes when we don't understand people, um, sometimes when we disagree with people, we can make them the other. As Aaron mentioned, I've been a police chaplain with Alhambra PD for about 15 years. And at times it's been challenging to be a police chaplain in our current um, societal climate, but especially in the last 10 months, it's especially been so. And in a lot of the circles that I swim in, um, those that are in the community development world, social justice world, um, they're confused by me because I speak and teach about community transformation and about God's heart for those that are marginalized, and yet I serve as a police chaplain. And um, so there has been some of my own experience of being the other in those conversations. Um, so I want us to look at this idea of what it means to otherize. And so I want us to be thinking through this text about who may be our other. Maybe it's somebody that has hurt us. Maybe it's someone that we don't understand. Maybe it's someone that we're afraid of. Maybe it's someone who has been oppressive to us or even arrogant. The other can be anyone we label and separate ourselves from and eventually maybe even write them off. I was doing a teaching on um, this idea of otherizing a few months ago and, and the group that I was working with, we thought we came up with the term otherizing until I looked it up in the dictionary and it actually already exists. So this is the official definition of to otherize. To make or regard a person or a social group as different or separate from our. Sometimes different can become less than. And when we don't see people through the lens of God, we may not value their life, and we may not see them as important as us. But if we're really to think about the core of the gospel message, it's about that all of our lives are important and valuable. But the minute that we identify a group 
or an individual as being the other. It really sends us into this place where we begin to justify someone is less than us and we can treat them differently. We've almost, it's almost like we've drawn a line in the sand and we want to see people the way that we want to see them and we begin to label them, we begin to put restrictions on them, and we begin to devalue them. We may not even see them as human, nor that we have a shared humanity. Um, neuros, uh, neuropsychological research, I've been doing some research in this area of, of otherizing, and so there was a study I came upon that said that, um, that otherizing is an innate and universal human capacity. As soon as we place people outside of the circle of us, our brain actually begins to devalue and justify our poor treatment of them. So this is actually a neuropsychological thing that happens. So again, this could be somebody that has judged us, misunderstood us, oppressed us, hurt us, is different than us. They become our other. I was looking also in the area of anthropology and um, you know, as humans, we really began in more this hunter-gathering tribe uh, type model. And as we lived in this hunter-gatherer tribes, you know, the tribes were threatened by predators or starvation or disease, and they had to compete with other tribes for the scarce resources. And in the harsh conditions, anthropologists tell us that those who cooperated within their tribes typically lived longer and had more offspring. And so the natural selection favored the evolution of love. But in those same evolutionary pressures, they also favored a ruthless aggression towards members of the competing tribes that they were fighting against. So cooperation and aggression evolved syn synergistically. So tribes which were much more cooperative within themselves were also more successfully aggressive. So I want us to think about that strange duality in our human nature, that we're capable of this incredibly deep, deep love and inspiring acts of self-sacrifice. And at the same time, we can be incredibly ruthless and cruel to those that are outside of us. And when we enter into this space of otherizing, we actually dismiss the other person's sufferings and trials and pains, and we only see them the way that we want to. Longfellow says that if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find that in each man's life's sorrow and suffering, enough to disarm all of our hostility. Another uh, hero of mine, Father Greg Boyle, in his book Tattoos on the Heart, writes, if there's a fundamental challenge within these stories, it's simply to change our lurking suspicion that some lives matter than other lives. When we otherize, we're saying that some lives are more important than others. Now, otherizing, from what I've been talking about, has studied from the standpoint of racism and economics and gender, which creates minority and majority groups, power structures, oppression. But I want us this morning to engage for the next few minutes about what this means from a spiritual standpoint. When we otherize, when we share, when we ignore our shared humanity, when we ignored our shared made in the image of godness, what's the implications for that? I want us this morning to read from uh, the book of Numbers, if you have your Bibles, um, and I'm going to read from chapter 16 of Numbers. I'm going to read a little bit of the story and then I'm going to do a little summarizing because it's a very long journey. And I want to kind of get a glimpse 
of what happened with a people group, a group of people when they otherized and how it impacted generations. And so I want to start with verse 1 in the book of Numbers 16. Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan, Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent. They rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, all known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came up as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell down, and then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show you who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses will cause, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your father, followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. And the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them. He's brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you're trying to get the priesthood too? It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? This story goes on, but this is really about um, how Korah um, was jealous and covetous of the role of Moses and Aaron. They felt entitled and maybe even a little bit self-righteous that they didn't have the same role that Moses and Aaron did. It goes on in the story where the Lord is obviously very upset about this, and Moses pleads, um, pleads on their behalf. Um, it's an unfortunate end of the story because um, the ground is opened up and swallows them all. Um, so maybe not a very hopeful end to the story, but that's not the end of it. Um, but what happened was I think there was this sense that what had happened to them caused their literal death, but it caused a spiritual death of the way that they began to see people differently. For them, their otherizing came out of judgment, came out of arrogance, came out of jealousy. But we all otherize for different reasons, maybe. But I wanted to, as we look in the story, let me just give you one little kind of tidbit on it. Um, going back, if you go into earlier in Numbers, the Israelites uh, have three groups um, that are chosen for the service to the Lord. Um, you have those that are of Gershon, those that are of Merari, and those are of Kohath. And they all have different roles with the sanctuary and the tabernacle. And for the Kohaths, they were asked to carry items on their shoulders um, that were of the sanctuary, but they couldn't actually touch the items or they would die. And so Kohath really began to disdain this task that he was entrusted with. And so it goes back um, a while where this kind of, um, this anger and this jealousy was born in him. So after this happens where um, they're all swallowed up, um, 
there's this promise given in Numbers 26 where it says that the children, this is in uh, Numbers 26 verse 11, it says, the children of Korah did not die. Even though all of this group of people were taken, um, the children, it says, there's a promise that they were still spared. So it divided the community, it divided and caused separation, and yet there was still hope that this one act would not be carried on forever. And then in Psalm 84, which is one of my favorite psalms, um, if any of you are familiar with, it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. Going on to verse 10, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather die, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The Psalm 84 is credited to the sons of Korah. So if you think about this journey that, that Korah was on and this arrogance that they had for Moses and Aaron and wanting this important role and it caused their death and the Lord said, this will not be upon you for generations. And then generations later in Psalm 84, we see this, this pro proclamation that I don't care what I do. I just want to be a doorkeeper in the house of, of my God, and I will be happy. There was this change of heart. There was this change upon the generation. And so as much as this is a difficult story, I think, for us to process through, there's incredible hope when we otherize. When we focus on otherize, it can bring death in our hearts, and we can be consumed with things that are not of God. And it may not be to the extreme of this story in Numbers, but we're reminded that death is not only physical. It's a spiritual reality. And the danger, what we see in this story, is that we can rationalize, rationalize and even justify how we otherize people. So how do we make each other the other? It starts when we label people and we make assumptions. It starts maybe when we're hurt and we respond out of our pain. Maybe because we haven't walked in someone else's shoes and we don't know their experiences. Maybe when someone reminds us of a previous person that has hurt us. Maybe we, when we decide that we are good and they are bad. Maybe when we feel like we have no power or control over them. Maybe when we don't know how to resolve a situation. Maybe when we view people by their actions and behavior rather than by our shared humanity and the fact that they're made in the image of God as we are. And when we otherize, we cut off each other's stories. We won't work together. We create damage in the body of Christ. We don't see each other as family. We can strip each other of our dignity. Our hearts and minds can be closed to healing and we may sit in judgment. We may even make assumptions on other people's hearts and motives. Our thoughts and words can become instruments of cursing and judgment rather than of blessing. By declaring people as other, it actually removes for the, the need for us to examine our own hearts, our own actions. See, this logic assumes that only bad people do these things, and we aren't like those bad people. We couldn't do something like this. Otherizing absorbs our own accountability and responsibility for our actions. 
So whether it's because of arrogance or jealousy or hurt, we all somehow have been made the other or participating in otherwise somebody else. So I want to bring us back to the last um, text we'll read this morning from Psalm 139. It's a familiar text. I'm going to be reading from verses 13 to 18, and I'm going to read it twice. And the first time as I read it, I want you to be receiving this as a proclamation over you, something that the Lord is speaking over you. And the second time, we're going to reflect on it from a different perspective. So this is the truth about what the Lord says about you. For you created my inmost being. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well that that your frame was not hidden from the Lord when you were made in the secret place, when you were woven together in the depths of the earth. God saw your unformed body. All the days were ordained for you were written in God's book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand when I awake and yet you are still with me. I'd like for the second time we read this through for you to think about maybe that person that you have otherized and God proclaiming this over them. For I created them in their inmost being. I knit them together in their mother's womb. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. Their frame was not hidden from me when, I, when they were made in the secret place and when they were woven together in the depths of the earth. The Lord saw their unformed body and all the da- days were ordained for them were written in God's book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts of them, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were we to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand and yet you are still with them. Sometimes it's hard enough for us to receive the reality that we are made in the image of God, but even harder to recognize that those maybe we disagree with or don't like were also made in the image of God. I think oftentimes we read Psalm 139 from the singular for ourselves and when we miss the intent of God speaking this over each one of us. We each hold a piece of God's beauty and goodness in us. So I want you to take about 15, 20 seconds to think about who is your other? What made them your other? When did you start to see them differently? Are you still able to see them as one who's made in the image of God? When I think about my other, and even this journey, Erin and I were just talking before service and how hard this has been for me, um, for us as police chaplains, and some of the things that have been personally said to me, um, it has been a struggle for me to not otherize people, um, to walk 
in my shoes means that I don't know what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And so we can't receive, um, when we receive um, that judgment, we can't return it. And so here are some things that we can do as we think about our other and the journey to not otherize them. The first thing is to speak well of other people. We want to avoid broad sweeping statements and stereotypes and labels. We live in a society that labels. That's what we do. If we think about just looking at our government, our Congress, that seems to be all that they do is we, we do a lot of labeling. The second thing is assume the best rather than the worst. Why is it that we assume the best about ourselves, but we always want to assume the worst about others? Imagine if, only, if people only saw the worst in us, how difficult that would be. Now, we, as we're assuming the best rather than the worst, we also don't want to deny real pain and suffering. This isn't about denying maybe real acts of oppression or things that have happened to us in whatever form it is. But it's about not seeing that person as a monster, but seeing them as a flawed human being just like we are. One of my favorite prayers is a Sioux Indian prayer that says, Great Spirit, help me to never judge another until I have walked in their moccasins. I think that we assume we know what it's like to walk in each other's shoes, but we really don't. And so I think this prayer can really help guide us in the journey. The next thing is to take time to listen to each other and to honor each other's stories. The next thing is to be kind. This is a quote from Plato. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. We never know what's going on in people's lives. We just know what we see. We want to commit, this is the next last thing, commit to praying for our other. God invites us into this rhythm because when we pray for others, our hearts have to be changed towards how we see them. And then the last thing one of my favorite proverbs, it's an African proverb, and it says, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. We have to recognize that we need each other. We live in a very dog-hate-dog world, and it's about survival of the fittest, who can be the loudest, who can be right, who's going to win. That's not the world that God created. He created us in a way where we are to honor what we carry in our lives, that we honor that in each other, that we are all made in the image of God. So as we think about this otherizing, my prayer is that as we go out, we will ask for God's lens as we see people, and that that will shift our world. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful that you proclaim over us that we are your sons and your daughters, that we are loved and that we are valued, that our lives matter and have purpose, and that we hold a part of your beauty in us. And I pray, God, that wherever we struggle with this, Lord, that you would give us strength and give us courage to be people that see each other as one another rather than the other. 
Help us to not live in this us and, le- us and them mentality, but Lord, help us to live in a way that we see that we need each other and that we need to honor. We need to honor each other, and in that way, Lord, we honor you. So we're grateful for this text from Numbers. We're grateful for the texts in Psalms. We're grateful for the things that we can learn um, about what it means to live a life that honors you. And so we're grateful, God, that we carry a part of you in us. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.